Papas Pilar is a spirit that embodies adventure. Named after the late great Ernest Hemingway in his boat, the Pilar, the name says it all. This ultra-premium blended rum is hand-selected from around the Caribbean and blended by master blender Ron Call. After a long day on the water, when the sun is descending the sky, end on a good note with Pilar by your side. Go support them at papaspilar.com or a liquor store near you. Starting from a 90-year-old family recipe, Wickles are wickedly delicious pickles packed with garlic and peppers, a staple in our skiff and all shoreline lunches. Originating from Sim's grandmother's kitchen to a pantry near yours, from pickles, okra, relishes, and spreads, check them out to elevate all of your meals to the next level. In my early years of tarpon fishing, I went to Homosassa, a legendary fishery where all the great guides and anglers would eventually go for a giant, if not a world record fish. Ed Walker was one of my first guides there who put me on my first truly big fish. His spectrum in fishing is vast, from winning big monster money tournaments, pulling the flats to offshore jigging. He's one of the fishiest guides you'll ever meet. We hope you enjoy it. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double-lunged them both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. <laughs> There's something fishy going on here. Eddie, it's so great to see you and have you on the podcast. We go way back. We go way back, and it's great to see you too, Andy been a long time i first met we first met each other when i hired you as a guide over in homosassa uh, i don't know how many years ago and then there was a big spell a, a, a big chunk of time that we really i mean you were posting things on the podcast but with the rally for tally for captains for clean water we reconnected there um it was so great to see you i want to cover a lot of things today but we just finished a Captains for Clean Water Gala and a day-long conservation uh, summit, symposium, if you will, with outdoor brands. Um, you were over here on the West Coast where you've seen a lot of issues over the years, the red tide and when all the, uh, the algae was coming out of the rivers. Uh, 
Uh, tell me a little bit about that and and uh, Boca Grande because you have had a, a long life fishing <clears throat> Boca Grande. You're telling me about the red tide before we got started. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with Captains for Clean Water and what you've seen over here and the, the the destruction and the efforts to clean it all up. So I've met uh, Daniel and a couple of those guys just guiding over the years. But when they started this organization was you know well at least when i became aware of it i'm not exactly sure when they started it but i had been through like i said around boca grande every year or not every year but when the red tide came to southwest florida it usually comes in the summertime when i'm there in mm-hmm. fact we're, we're fishing around there somewhere where sometimes we're down in sanibel captiva but it's not that often that a west florida red tide cranks up in the summertime that I'm not in it. So we see as guides, we watch generations of fish float up dead, you know, snook that are over slot that have, you know, made it to live forever size, just floating off in rafts and, you know, redfish, not as many tarpon. And you just sit there helpless watching everything die around you knowing that it's going to be years before a level of fishing like that might come back so there's this group called captains for clean water i think i saw them on the internet or something like that and they said you know we're we're fighting for clean water rights and i just wrote them a check and sent it off didn't didn't ask any questions didn't ask anything for it i'm like here's what i would have made for a gratuity today in one day of making a living on the Gulf of Mexico where we need clean water. Right. So didn't think much of it. They do a raffle and I'm like, man, I can, I can help myself with the clean water issue or help these guys help us. And maybe I'll even win a cool skiff. So, you know, after a while I kind of got to know the guys, you know, I got, mm-hmm. I got some contact back from them and then they did this thing uh the 2508 mm-hmm. bill they said we're gonna have a bunch of guides we're, we're encouraging a bunch of guides come up here and you know stand up against this dirty thing that somebody's trying to put across on us so i said i'm going to that and then I, I talked to a couple other guys nobody could go so i got in my car by myself drove up there that morning and i come around the corner it was pretty early and there's there's, you know, guy, famous guide guy here, famous guy. Just one by one, these guys kind of trickle in and make a, a group. Andy Mill walks up I'm like, Andy, how you doing? It's been, <laughs> been 30 years. And then, you know, all these guys show up. And I was like, I almost had a tear in my eye. My eye. I was so proud of our guys. I don't know that there's ever been a moment where the top guides in Florida, who, you know, guides don't always get along with other guides. You know how it is. All of us got together and stood shoulder to shoulder and they had pulled out the worst part of that bill just just for us showing up before we even got in the room. They knew we were coming. Then we got in there inside the room and I was like sitting alongside looking around. I'm like, man, that's that that's that guy. I, I know that guy. I forget his name or whatever. And there's this famous guide guy over here. And I was like absolutely honored to, to be able to participate in that day. And it, it made me proud of the guide group you know all of us florida wide as a as a body that could get something done like that so well they created a movement <clears throat> a groundswell and it's become a tsunami 
Yeah. And all the lobbyists and the and the uh, the board members, they're going to be held accountable. And that that was a confirmation that we are doing great work because they had uh, it, the bill passed, and then we got DeSantis to, to veto it. So it is here for good, and thank God uh, that we have a professional group that really understands the dynamics of the water management stuff, and now the reservoir EAA is going to be built, and we're going to have clean water, hopefully, for the rest of the time. But at least they know Captains for Clean Water is going to be a watchdog. Right, and we yeah. need those guys because that stuff is really complicated. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I'm pretty active in fisheries management and stuff like this, but and I'd like to be more active in that, but I, I don't know about that stuff. Mm-hmm. That that reservoir and, and the flow this way and that way and levels this and that, I, it's hard to, you need somebody that stays on it. Well, it's a professional group. They, uh, they're gonna, they've dedicated their lives to this and, and uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to work. And, and we'll get into uh, to your uh, sure. uh, involvement with golf, uh, golf right. management, fisheries and stuff. Different but let's, let's go back to the early years because we've all seen uh, Boca Grande has been so famous for so long about the tarpon fishing in the in the past mm-hmm. the first fish ever caught was in 1885 in sanibel so there's been uh there's been such uh notoriety in in boca grand mm-hmm. what did what did you find this spot for the first time <laughs> and tell me about your relationship with the past and tarpon fishing here on the west coast i certainly didn't find the spot first that's for sure yeah, I, no. I, i'm a big florida history buff and as i'm sure you are and you read some you know <clears throat> my favorite book that i've read recently is called the gulf it's a pulitzer prize winning book right <clears throat> the history of the gulf of mexico and, and boca grande is a big part of the history of florida you know and thomas edison and all the history involved in that but you know when i arrived there um we had been fishing up at Homosassa for a while, and my roommate up there, uh, his parents had a house in Boca Grande, and he's like, "Man, you gotta, you think this is good up here? You need to come down to my parents' house in Boca Grande and check out. You know, we got we got tarpon down there. I'd never been there, and come roll around the corner, and the entire pass is shining with tarpon backs, and the the whole beach in both directions is strings and daisy chains on the bar, and there's hardly anybody around. I'm like, holy mackerel!" I, I think I'm going to cut off half of next Homosassa season. I'm going to spend half of it down here. So actually, was, was Homosassa dying off by that time? Homosassa or was, it, was, yes. Do you remember I, the years uh, you're talking about here? So because that, for I think me, you and, I think I stopped in 88. So I think you, you and I fished together in, uh, in 87, 88. So mm-hmm. I was, I was like 20 years old or something. And, um, you know, I, Al DePeric was actually giving me some of his overflow trips up there. Um, not sure exactly how you and I came together, but, uh, you were, you're a big dog guide. No, I was definitely not a big dog guide. I was, uh, I'll tell you what I was. I was the starstruck 20 year old kid with a flats boat when I showed up there. I I was definitely not one of the top dogs, but I was kind of honored to be, you know, had, uh, Stu Apt walk in my condo one day and tell me i was sharpening the hook wrong and you know we got bobby Orr, the hockey player is having breakfast with us at a little tiny place in the middle of nowhere and all these famous people and uh, famous guides from the keys and i'm just this kid from indian rocks beach you know i, I never was involved in any of this kind of how stuff. did you get up there um so i did a lot of tarpon fishing here and i believe it was al de said hey kid you know i got 
I got a lot of guys want to fish up here at Homosassa. You should come up here and start poking around, and I'll give you some of my overflow if you want to try. And that's how I got started up did there. He, did he help you out um, in other ways as far as fishing goes? Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty tight. Al will help group. you out, but he ain't telling you where the fish are or the pattern or anything about the fish. You so know? how was that learning curve? Was it pretty, you know, I don't want to say easy, <clears throat> but was it obvious of where the fish were back in, the, back in those days? No. Because I was there, there there's I, no edges, right. you know, like the keys. There's no points. There are no points, edges. Yeah, it's, but when the old timers speak about Homo in the prime, they say you went out there and you just uh, just bus everywhere and rolling tarpon everywhere. That was that was I, best I could tell. That was before I got there. Yeah, it was. And and Billy Noel said, I said, how did you first learn to fish there? He said, I just came out of of the cut. I just started running and looked for a bust. Yeah. And he'd run towards that bus. He'd see another one shut down, and he was surrounded by 500 fish. Yes. So we were there. When, when you and I were fishing together was the decline. For, for whatever reason the decline was, I really don't know. But that's why it was pretty easy for me to to start to move to Boca Grande right. and start fishing down there because I could catch 10 a day down there in Boca Grande. Yeah. And, and at Homosassa at that time, we were, we were ranking our days on shots. You know, I had a pretty good yeah. day. We had three shots today. After a while, I'm like, that was no. a good day. Yeah, yeah, no, I was I was up there when I left. I didn't make a cast for four days. Right, I didn't see a fish for four days. Yeah, I I'm, said, I, you know, I can't I'm, get better. I'm not staying that. And you know, I had guys that would have paid me every day to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't stand it. I'm not. I'm, were, were I got to catch a fish sooner or later. I don't care. I'm not in it for the money. Were they record chasers? Some were, some weren't. Some were just there for the mystique of the giant tarpon of Homosassa, you know, and there was some big fish and we caught some big ones, but uh, no, my guys were mostly not record chasers. Actually. How many years were you there? Mm, I think I fished five or six years there yeah. toward the end and I, I got to a little taste of it, you know, right. when it was still pretty good. You know, we'd catch two or three giants a day. What, what was it like as a guide to be out there in the flats and you, you see all these other guides? Well, like Malzone and Al. And- so, so it was such a small town where we stayed. You know, we weren't in Homosassa. We were down there in Bayport, Wikiwachi area. Right. And what it is, is condos. It's a little rural condos. Tiny. So, so we all stayed so together. There's like, there's like, there's like five little condos right next to each other. Right. And that's where we all, we all stayed. Everyone. All the anglers and all the guides. Famous guys from all over the world. All the guides. We're all staying in the woods, essentially, on this little tiny ditch that dumped out into the Gulf, right where the tarpon are. So you and, never knew who was having breakfast right. with you. You know, Grammy-winning guitar player, Christopher Parkening, I used to take fishing. And, you know, Bobby Orr, legendary I hockey never, I never knew he was a fisherman. Big big fly fisherman, yep. Wow. And so, Bobby Era? Yeah, I, I, so... <clears throat> I have some great Bobby Harris stories. <laughs> Good. Bring it. But I, I actually, that that goes over to the Keys. So, okay, I, so well, I got I got to know all those guys, and Bobby Arrow liked me, and you know he was a good guy to have on your side. You know, you know, I was I was the kid, you know, the kind of the the uh, underdog around there. I was just kind of learning from the the big dogs mm-hmm. and following along, and um, you know, I got to know all the homeless characters back then, which it was a cast of characters. It, for it, sure. it was. What was <laughs> what was the biggest fish you caught in homeless uh you know we we definitely caught some 175s 180s you know i've got a picture one that we pulled in the boat actually back then we'd lip gaff them and kind of mm-hmm. pull them in the boat to look at them it was probably 180 pounds or something we'd you measure that in. fish 
Jazibo. I don't remember. Yeah. It was yeah. so long ago. We and, caught and, a pretty uh, good one. <clears throat> Raz Reed and I caught a real big one one time that took us up into the woods of Chazawisco, where I didn't even know where I was. We were so deep in the woods back there. This thing drug us in there. Didn't jump. Wouldn't wouldn't run. Just just dogging. That was a real big one too. Did you ever get him? We got him. Yeah. Yeah. Long longer battle than I would do nowadays. But And yeah, then you came it. down to Boca Grande and who were the top guides down here? Was it Tommy Locke and Chris Klingle? Tommy Tommy was uh Tommy and Jimmy Weber were next door at Homosassa. Yeah, uh, that, they that, were that was, up there. They were yeah. they were next door and they were the younger guys. You know, we were the younger guys. So right. I, I hung out with those guys. I fished with Tommy up there too. Yeah. Tommy moved to Boca Grande around the same time I think mm-hmm. I left uh so as far as fly fishing goes, you know, as far as I knew, Boca Grande, Phil O'Bannon was the guy. That, that's really the only name that came up back then as far as, you know, George Bush fished with them down there. Yeah. And um, he, he still is regarded as Boca Grande top dog, as far as I know anyways. But um, I don't know. Yeah. How was the fishing it, in Boca, Boca Grande's a tricky place to say who's the top dog, right? There's a lot of great tarpon fishing. There's a lot of old historical guys that have been doing it 50 years. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm careful what I talk about. Who's the anywhere you tarpon fish, sure. saying who's the yeah, who's the top dog? Yeah. You got to watch your stuff. A lot of egos. Bit. Yeah, I, I don't, and I, you know, I don't. I'm not striving to ever be, you know, the guy or the legend or anything like that. You know, we all just fish, and you know. It's, you're right. One day you're great, and the next day you don't catch one, and you know yeah. you're still a hero. From I champ, don't know. champ to chump. I, I, yeah, I don't want any part of that stuff. I just, I'm, I've been doing it long enough. I just like to appreciate what I do for a living. And yeah. So you got to Boca and you saw all this great stuff. How'd you, how'd you get your feet <clears throat> wet there? Uh, well, Chris Klingle yeah. is how I ended up there. He was my roommate at Homosassa, one of my roommates, and his parents had a house there. And he was a really good beach fisherman and past fisherman and all that. So he kind of showed me around down there. And that's how I kind of learned the, learned the ropes. And then I started sniffing around a little bit myself. Didn't, didn't he, was he involved with the first building of the Silver King? Yeah, uh, him and his dad built the, they, they were the original Silver King guys. Yep. Are, they still, I, are they still building that boat? No, they quit making those like 15, 20 years ago. And they sold it to Johnny Morris and he's... Quit making them. It just got it mothballed in the back somewhere. In my story, but I still have a Silver King skiff as well. I love those things. So, did you? Were you? Did you ever get involved with the jig fishing over in Boca Grande? <sighs> or are you more of a fly guy? <clears throat> well, oh, this is a touchy subject. <laughs> well, all right. So I'm gonna have to clarify. So, truth be told, uh, the Klingles are the ones that came up with that breakaway jig, right? It was a derivative of something they had in Louisiana. Right. And they came up with this way that the jig head would break off. And so Chris and I, he he shared it with me. It was top secret. Like if you put it in the water, you held it in your hand, you put it under the water and you let it go. You did not swing it around in the pass. So you were Mr. Jig. <laughs> Just I, I love, that's why, uh, let me finish my story. Okay. So we really didn't know 
It was a ridiculous looking lure. Made no sense. You know, as a tarpon guide, it's like no no tarpon is ever going to eat that stupid looking thing. It's got a 16-aught circle hook zip tied to a freaking rubber tail jig. Right. So what, the, what, what was going to break off when you said it breaks off? The lead head breaks off. They thought that was the innovation. So when the fish jumps, this head, the lead comes off. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't shake the hook out. Right. You know? And we thought sure. this was this great invention. But... The whole time I was thinking, why would it, you know, I've, I've thrown a tarpon enough and been turned down on a fly or whatever to, to know that a tarpon is not going to eat a big chunk of metal with a plastic zip tie. And, but you drop it down there and you drift through that inlet and it goes boom, 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 and you reel up that circle hook and you got him. And when you get him next to the boat, he's hooked in the hinge where, you know, you hook fish there all the time on regular tackle. So we, we fished it for a couple of years. Was the hook from the outside of the face? In, in, in it the was hinge? behind the hinge. Oh, so it slid so up. So what, you know, eventually I think we figured out that all these fish are down there and the, it slides up behind that hinge. I don't know if he's breathing or what, but somehow that line slides up there and you reel it tight and you got him. And if his mouth's open, it looked like it's in the corner. Right. So God, that's, that, that's why area. it wasn't obvious right away that that's why it worked so good because right. it's they're not eating it i mean we figured that out after a while but at first we just thought we had this magic weapon and chris and i went on we won like every tournament they had for two or three years back in the miller's marina tournament days and those are big tournaments prize <clears throat> yeah money. we won a lot of money i was feeling like man i'm we got this figured out but there was there was something wasn't right about it i i knew it in my soul that there's there's no way that this charter boat captain that's been here 40 years and knows exactly how to lay his live bait right in there on the ledge better than i ever will that i'm i'm out fishing this guy you know two to one 15 to one with the zip tie and a big with chunk a stupid of looking yeah, lure right. right so i started to get a bad feeling about it and eventually i took the rubber tail off of it right so it's a it's a sinker zip tied to a hook it has no resemblance to a fish or a crab or anything. And I do a drift with that and it works just as good. Interesting. And so that's, that, that's when you figured it out. And that's when I stopped fishing the pass. That year, I never dropped another jig in that pass and I was became a full-time beach fisherman. We did some fishing, live bait fishing in the pass. We still do if it's a hill tide or something like that. And we fish live bait tournaments in there still, but yeah, something was very dirty about mm-hmm. that and did you, know, you start speaking out against the jigs at that point or were you just no you just moved it on? was so i was associated with it you know i had i had won tournaments with it and, and it wasn't against the rules so you kind of helped innovate the popularity of it unfortunately <laughs> do i have to admit that <laughs> I, i'm i'm sorry to say i did and i and i regret that I, I I honestly didn't know, and I like I said when I when we realized what was really happening, I walked away from it. But would Clink do? But by it's, then it had been exposed to the masses, sure, right? So you got you got a flood of new people that are all tarpon experts overnight. You just drop this thing in there, and you're getting double headers, and there's boats hooked up all over, and it was just awful. Did the bait fishing go away at that point? Because it well, was... those people just when it got overrun with jiggers. They just bumped those guys right out of the way. It was it was a disgrace what they did to the historical Boca Grande tarpon fishermen. You know, I tried to maintain 
respect and stay out of their way and all that when I was one of just two guys doing it. And then when I saw what happened, I was embarrassed that I ever had any part because that was like the worst thing that ever happened to Boca Grande. So that's my story on Boca Grande. Yeah. How much money did you win in those tournaments? um, Those tournaments, uh, I don't know, $7,500,000 over the years. Did you stop fishing tournaments? You had to. Have. Well, you can't win without fishing with the jigs. And oh those yeah, tournaments. You yeah. No live bait. They still have live bait tournaments. But they banned the they banned the jigs. Jigs have been banned, and I you know I never did those. I'm, I'm happy to say those TV tournaments that were like a circus with the guy all dressed up in the same outfits and wraps yeah. on their boats, and I never did that. That was yeah. that was after the jig thing got out. And of it was control. televised, so they were dragging their fish to oh. the, to the beach, weighing them in a sling letting them go and the sharks were getting them well they would weigh them and then they would hold them up the four people would hold them up on the beach and the fish was just and no chance yeah uh, those were and those were the worst thing that ever happened at tarpon tree those tournaments are an embarrassment to the historical fishing in boca Grande, 100 percent. and luckily they were able to to stop it because it was a disgrace i remember watching some of that but i also too heard that they would drag them back out into the current and into the past and if they died, they'd start floating. So they started sticking holes in them. Is that, is that right? I was never there when those tournaments yeah. went on. I went as far from that place as I could. And, you know, and, and unfortunately, uh, you know, I was, I was lumped in with those guys because I, I did it prior to that. I, right. I fished jigs. Mm-hmm. Um, so wherever I, you know, people would say, oh, you, you guide in Boca Grande? I'm like, yeah. And they say, what's your team name? I see that stuff on TV. And I'm like, <laughs> no it's that's not tarpon mm. fishing in boca Grande. that is a shit show that should have never happened so, right and it brought a bunch of guides from you know quote unquote guides that have you know they live in orlando and they come over on the weekend and run tarpon charters and stuff it was just it's a shame what yeah. happened but there's still viable live bait tournaments and you know after all that was gone actually i don't know if it was gone but we fished a live bait tournament there. They have the, the, the long-term uh, famous tournament down there is the Chamber of Commerce, Boca Grande Chamber of Commerce, uh, world's richest tarpon tournament, they call it. And at the time, it was very prestigious, 60 boat limit, and it, it sold out every year. Live bait only, you fish, they, implemented a rule where the fish have to be confirmed hooked in the mouth even on live bait the mm-hmm. committee boat had to see that it was hooked in the mouth good that's what i want so I, each I support boat had that. an observer no you all have to fish in the pass mm-hmm. so when you get a hookup you call it in and one of the there's numerous committee boats and they come over and they watch you right so we decide we're going to go get in with the live bait guys and fish live bait in my small boat who is your partner so I had three guys, Steve Kosis, Scott Tomlinson, who were charter client friends, and another guy, Tiki Reynolds. And they said, we're going we're gonna to kind of cross some boundaries here. It's historically a big boat, diesel, um, drift in the chair through the pass, the way they've done it for 50 years down there. And we're going to go in there in an outboard boat, which is, you know, kind of unpopular at the time. And we're going to fish live bait the way... You know, we fish live bait, fish live crabs the whole time. And it's a two-day tournament. You can weigh one fish a day. It was, they had a sling, but they'd weigh it right there 
put it back in the water. There was no dragging around on the beach, and mm-hmm. you know, it was it was a much more acceptable way of weighing a fish. They and don't. You do only that weigh anymore. one a day. Went one a day. So anyway, long story short, first day we're drifting through. Uh, we're definitely the underdog. We're the smallest boat in the tournament. One of I think only two outboard boats, and we catch a one fifty four. So end of the day, we're sitting in first place. First place pays a hundred grand. So we got to go one more day. And we're just like, we just want to run the clock out. So I'm like, well, we might as well just fish because we had to sit here for six hours and watch all these guys. Because you can't call that fish. You can't catch a big one now. Well, you can weigh one a day and it's a two-day tournament. So, okay. But we just wanted to run the clock out, but it was the slowest the clock has ever gone in my life sitting (laughs) at the top of the list. So we keep fishing and we catch another one and it's 153. So now we're in first and second. So now we're really freaked out. We can't. Can't weigh another fish, but I said, well, let's just keep fishing. And boats are calling in hookups. This guy's got a fish on over here. Oh, this guy's got one. It's really big, and he loses it next to the boat, and it comes off. And I could see it. It was going to beat me, and he lost, and it comes off. And I'm like, dear God, will this clock please run out on this thing? So one of the guys in my boat hooks another fish, and we catch it and let it go. So when the buzzer finally sounds, we win First, second, and we split third place. Third place was most releases. So we split that maybe with Tommy Locke. I'm not sure, but I know he was in that. So we win $247,000 starting oh, fish Oh, my God. So big day for us. But the traditional entrance in that tournament, very unhappy. Um, filed protests against us. Uh, they said, first they said my line was too light, which isn't really an advantage well, typically, is, but. Is, is, yeah, what's the limit of on line? You have to use 50 pound. So they confiscated my rods and they but somehow what, checked but, my line. But let's back up a second. But if you, you what, 50 pound mono all the way to the reel? Um, that's what we were using, Yes. And if you use lighter, why should anybody care? Well, because they might get more bites because of the, the smaller. You might diameter. get more bites, and you might fight it too long and feed it to the sharks or something like that. I'm I'm sure was the thinking, but certainly I didn't see it as an advantage in a tournament. But was but a, it, but it wasn't. I it was. They checked my rods and I checked out clean. 50 oh, I tests. see. They were uh, they were accusing you, but you were fifty. So then they accused me that my fishing license was expired and therefore I was illegally fishing. So I was therefore disqualified. They were they were out to get one of the local boys on that on the podium, uh, any way they could at that point. So they tell me I have to go show my fishing license to the tournament director. So to his credit, I forget the guy's name, but he was awesome. So I show up at the Temptation Restaurant in Boca Grande, and he's sitting there at the bar. And I walk in, and I reach for my wallet, and he looks at me. He's like. He says, you don't, don't even pull that thing out of your pocket. He said, I don't, I don't even care if it's expired. He goes, this is pathetic what's happening right now. And it, it wasn't expired, actually. But right. He goes, this is, this is really sad so which what hunt? they're trying to do for yeah. you. So, so we pass that, and we go to this giant awards thing at the Boca Grand Club out there that's huge spread and all that, and, like, nobody comes. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter give oh me that the gosh. celebrations Checkbook. in the streets that they set up for that tournament they closed the whole street off it was very muted that year because the wrong guy had won the tournament the kid, from, the kid from out of town had had swept everything got all the trophies all the money i got this fancy watch they gave me and you know 
And so they essentially kicked us out after that. Mm -hmm. They changed the rules around. No small, no boats under 22 or three feet. You can't, you can't fight a fish from the front of the boat. You have to fight it from the stern. You have to use Dacron line, which is hard to even find Dacron line because I, it's old. They don't. Mm -hmm. Nobody uses it anymore. And you have to use wire leader now. Really? Those four rules were changed like the night after the tournament. None of which we were doing because we were using fluorocarbon leader and fifty pound mono and all that. And you know, as far as I can tell, that's why we won the tournament. But oh. <clears throat> so that essentially we were de facto kicked out of the tournament for winning. And who cares? You took your money and went tarpon fishing with little <laughs> skiffs and fly rods. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's that was 20 years ago and it's still kind of sour grapes around there. Were people pretty disrespectful to you years years after that? Yeah. Like tomorrow they still are mad about it. Really? Cer certain ones. Some of them some of them came around and said, "Look, I'm sorry that it got to be like this, but you know, it was very unpopular at the time and you know an outboard guy and you know, on the diesel boat so you know that's not really how they had historically done it and, and we did so there was mm -hmm. a lot of animosity there but my fish were all confirmed hooked into mouth they weren't caught on a jig they were caught on live bait and <clears throat> it was all by the rules so they changed the rules yeah huh interesting you we've seen over the years and we did a podcast uh, uh with uh davis frank davis frank davis i know frank frank was actually one of the good guys yeah and then. he was one of the guys that helped shut the whole jig thing yeah, down and that's good uh, and we spoke about the sharks um what that's just a natural place for sharks to go feed is it still is it still that way yeah it always has been if you look at the historical pictures you know as far back as they go they'll when they used to hang the tarpon up on racks they'd have three heads hanging there and three tarpon hanging there. So it's, it's always been there. It's worse now due to shark management, which is uh, based more on emotion than science nowadays, you know, mm -hmm. national geographic discovery channel, shark week, every, you know, they just pump you full of this, you know, the Japanese fleet is decimating the oceans of sharks right off of Boca Grande, but that's none of that's actually happening in United States waters, but, so the extremist shark lovers have been very successful in eliminating commercial shark fishing, sale of sharks, um, even vilifying anyone who dares bring a shark to the dock now, even a legally, sustainably caught abundant species. Mm -hmm. You will be blasted for bringing in a shark nowadays. Duck Camp makes outdoor goods so you can outdoor good. From the shallow water flats to the mallard-filled marshes, Duck Camp is there to make you feel comfortable and enhance the quality of your time in the elements. Not only do they make some of the best outdoor apparel on the market, but they support many of the organizations near and dear, fighting for a resource in the natural world. Check them out at duckcamp.com and tell them we sent you. Whether on the boat, on the river, or in the woods, Yeti products are by our side. There are many innovative first-class companies in the outdoor market today, but none more so than Yeti. In 2006, they took the industry by storm when they produced their first roto-molded cooler that was reliable and built for the wild. 17 years later, with a multitude of new products, 
They continue to raise the bar and be the gold standard for all outdoor brands. We couldn't be more proud to have them as a Millhouse sponsor and a family member. And so that has caused a population explosion like crazy. So there are way more sharks now. And that is exactly why there are more shark predations now than there used to be. Because commercial fishing has for sharks has essentially been eliminated in Florida now. Mm-hmm. I remember Tom, and just recently I was talking to Tom Evans about Home Assassin, talking to you and, and, and Al DePeric, of whom we're going to interview tomorrow. And he was talking about the big fish and all the big fish that they saw in Home Assassa, all of a sudden the numbers started uh, to decrease because all the sharks were killing the big fish in, in Boca Grande. But yet, but yet, uh, you know, you get up to the panhandle, they got a lot of monster fish. Mm. So I was wondering, you know, I mean, I was thinking too, once we had more science involved, they realized that the, that the, that the food source was, was going away because all the crabs were no longer there. The water salinity coming out of the rivers got way too high and the food source was gone. So a lot of those big fish and the big herds of, of the home assassin fish that they originally saw were no longer going there or staying there. What's your take on all that? You know, initially I would have said uh, it was some change in water quality up there or salinity or something. But it doesn't really fit from what I know about that. I don't know. They just... They just kind of quit going there. I will tell you that in the whatever five years that I guided at Home Assassa, I never once saw a shark ever in, in the month of May for mm-hmm. five years. Never saw a shark on those flats. And I guess it's really common now. Yeah, because Tom was telling me too this last year, uh, he was out there and he saw quite a few sharks. Um, yeah, and they got tigers up there they, too. They were biting their carpet up there last yeah, year. So that, I, no one ever got sharked that yeah. I was aware of in the years that I fished at Home Assassin. So you left the uh, the jig fishing, the past stuff, and then you started gravitating, you know, to the local fly fishing on the beaches and stuff. What what were you seeing? What were you catching? What was the scenario like? Well, it's pretty much the standard nowadays. You, you park on the edge of the, you know, an edge, a sandbar, a point, or, you know, corner of the pass or something like that. You shoot and they come around the corner and, and there was lots. It was, it was for a while, it was the most underrated fly fishing spot around. I mean, you have shots all day at big schools and big and days. They were biting. Chains. They bite pretty good. Yeah. yeah I mean, was, they weren't getting thrown at a lot. Um, I remember I fished But the number up. of shots blew away your best day ever in Home Assassin. Right. But you remember fishing... I remember fishing the beach a little bit, and the, I think the last time we'd find a, um, a daisy chain of fish, and we'd slide over there, and pretty soon we'd start casting, and all of a sudden a bunch of other people were coming right on top well, of it, yeah, racing that's, in. That's I think that's anywhere you go now, but it's particularly a thing down there. There's there's a lot of fly guys in Boca Grande now. You know, there there used to be a handful, and they'd sit on this point and that spot. You know, those were the fly fishing spots, and we we didn't bother them when we were live bait fishing. We'd go fish somewhere else. But man, there is a skiff on every sandbar and point and corner you can go nowadays. Yeah. You know, there is a lot. And, and you know, a lot of it is the guys, their charter clients that go out with the local guide and he takes them to point A and they sit there and they throw at the tarpon when they come by on the outgoing tide. So, you know, guy buys his own skiff 
And he goes out there and he parks on point A in the evening and throws at the tarpon going by. It's it's very common down mm-hmm. in that area. How's the fishing inside of the cut? In the pass? Yeah, like, I don't know, the ba- like the bay. The, oh, in the uh, bay? The, like the hill tide. I remember the hill tide and the falling tide and all the crabs. So the beauty of Boca Grande and the reason probably that I'm still there is, you know, I think all the tarpon, maybe all the tarpon in the Gulf come and go out of Boca Grande at some point annually but as they're coming and going and you know feeding there's tarpon in the harbor you know 10 miles up pine island sound is a fantastic inshore fishery inside of the islands and where i like to fish is nowadays is well north of boca grand you know 15 miles north of boca grand up the beach is still kind of kind of remote and you know not nearly as crowded and the fish are going to boca grand i'm just getting first dibs on them up there right. but, mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll tell you another because thing because early in the season the fish are coming from the north they're sliding down the beach from the north heading towards boca grand so what you'll find and, and i've i've been there 30 years now and i can say this with pretty much confidence all the not all most of the tarpon are going to boca grand whichever side of the pass they're on that's the way they're going. They're when you go to Sanibel Island or Captiva, the primary movement is north. And when you get to other side of Boca Grande, the primary movement is south. Mm-hmm. They're all going like this. And they, you know, to my knowledge, they get in these massive schools in there. And when the school's big enough and they're ready, they shoot straight offshore. To spawn. Sorry, I'm just going to check that real quick. <laughs> keep, keep going. And they go out there. And, you know, do their spawning thing out on the edge out there, 100-something miles offshore. But but most tarpon during the peak season are swimming toward Boca Grande when, you're on the, when they're on the coast. I think, in my view, they come in from the Gulf, they hit the beach, and they go to Boca Grande, regardless of which side they're coming from. And that's why the pass is just essentially the epicenter of everything tarpon at that time of the year. So you can get up ahead of them 15, 20 miles this way, or we fish down off Sanibel and deep water out there sometimes, but everything's going to Boca Grande. Interesting. But I'll tell you another thing. <clears throat> the last few years, when we, we're kind of running away now from where everybody else goes. You know, we get up in the morning, if everybody's going left, we go right. It doesn't even matter if there's a thousand tarpon to the left, we go the other. And I think you know, most of the guys you'd have on your broadcast here tell you the same thing. Fleet goes that way, you go that way. You know, I'd rather throw it six by myself than 6,000 in a group of people down there. But recently, well, last 10 years, I guess, we've discovered that there's some really good tarpon fishing way offshore. Well, I say way offshore, sometimes six, seven miles offshore. And when it's right, it's a needle in a haystack to go find them. Right. Um, nobody's, nobody's out there looking, but when you find them, it's like all of them, it'll be, you know, 500 or a thousand fish sitting out there shining in the sun pre-spawn in in 40 feet of water. Well, there's different reasons they go out there. One is fairly well known. Now, if the weather gets really bad and it gets all mudded out on the beach, particularly if mud flows into the past, dirty water flows into the past, all those fish go offshore. That's become a little bit too well known too. And they go and they park about seven, eight miles offshore, and they just sit there until they're ready to come back. But there's other things, other factors that'll run them out there too. And when we find them out there, it's usually just us. And sometimes it's it's days of just us and all the tarpon and nobody bothering because we're over the horizon typically. So nobody can see you out right. there. Nobody's going to see you because they're not running by or anything right. like that. The best tarpon fishing day or week that I've ever had 
there was a hint of red tide in the water up off of, uh, we'll call it near, um, which a lot of people don't fish there anyway. <laughs> uh, can, can I use your we'll beep? Can I use the beep button? Yeah. You still have the beep button. And all the fish disappeared from the beach and you could, you had a little tickle in your throat. Something wasn't right. The fish weren't dying anywhere, but you could smell it in the surf when it gets aerated. So nobody found any tarpon. We're driving back and forth. There's no tarpon for days. Where's the tarpon? So it's calm one day and my mate on my boat sees a splash way out on the horizon. There's something splash out there. I'm like, fine, we'll go out there. We run out <clears throat> a couple of miles, nothing further out than that. A couple more miles skyrocket out there. We run out there. So we end up about six, seven miles offshore and like every tarpon from Boca Grande is just sitting out there spread out kind of loosely you know you've seen those schools where it's not a tight bunch yeah, sure. this is like a huge area of randomly rolling and they're casually swimming by the boat and i mean it was like all of them and i was over the horizon and i sat out there for a week and just absolutely laid waste to them and my friends are calling me man what's going on you know I where guess, are you and i'm not answering <laughs> even my very best friends i'm like i am off the radar i'm not telling anybody so Finally, one guy is like, man, I haven't caught fish in a couple of days, you know, nobody's seen you, what's going on? I'm like, all right, here's what you got to do. You got to, you got to go out this way. You're going to run due west, seven miles over the horizon where no one can see you. Then you're going to turn and you're going to run 10 miles north off the coast where no one's going to see you and then pull in there and you'll, you'll see me and you'll see them. So he does that and he pulls in and he's tarping as far as you can see shining and a freaking boat comes in behind him a guy in a skiff followed him out i'll leave his name out no i want to hear it no, no leave it out yeah you, you might not know him i don't think he guides anymore but uh so he he sees what's going on out there in the middle of the gulf and the next day the entire fleet was there when i got there there was 16 boats or something like that when i arrived in the morning and in, in oh, one God. day they put it down and the fish left it was, it went from the greatest tarpon fishing to the biggest hose job yeah. of all time i got totally ruined by that guy so that's why we'll leave his name out that's what they say loose lips shink, shink i told shinks. one guy my one of my best friends you must have wanted to kill and we him. went to great lengths to not it wasn't his fault he did oh, what yeah, i told yeah, him. him yeah he went to the over the horizon i think you you're a little loose lip sometimes with tarpons <laughs> i know i get so excited he gets, I can't he gets a little loose lipped <laughs> Like, is that, is that you, when you implemented why, the beep button? Why did you tell that guy that? Well, He's like, by, well, the, I, by the time I know and find out and hear, I'm the last whistle dick in life. So, <laughs> no, no. Sometimes every every once in a while we'll find something special, and you have to tell somebody. I call Carl Ball. <laughs> I just call one guy. Um, it's hard, but it's important. You know, you. I got a buddy of mine that's an offshore guy in Key West. He's a retired Coast Guard guy. And he's kind of one of these, you know, everybody does the same thing. We all go to the shrimp boats and catch tunas and we fish for muttons over here and there. And we all kind of do the same thing. There's no secrets anymore. And I was like, that's where you're wrong. Yeah. Secrets are what separate the really good guys from everybody else. It's secrets and how well you keep them. Yeah, everybody knows it, what the regular stuff, but... 
the good guys have a little something in their back pocket that they will never tell you. How often do you find secrets, new secret spots? Uh, it's, it's hard with so many people fishing. Well, I, I'm always looking. There, there's always another trick. I firmly believe that. No matter how overdone something is or how many years they've been doing it, there's always, that's one of the most exciting things about all this. There's always a new trick. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of like three right now, but I can't tell you any of them actually. Yeah. <laughs> Some that you would go, wow, really? That works? I would have never thought of Are that. Are a lot of those tricks uh, regarding tackle and hooks? Uh, yeah, I mean, not as much. Mm-hmm. Everybody's tried everything in tackle maybe. I don't know. Everybody's gone light tackle, small hooks, whatever. But there's there's places you... I, I still think there's one more tarpon thing hasn't even been found yet. Like a when it gets found, I think it'll be kind of a big deal. But Are you tucking outside the state of Florida, possibly? No. No. I, I got an idea that there's a whole nother, I don't know if we call it fishery. another fishery or something like that. But I, I think I've discovered something that's unique that hasn't been discovered by much anybody yet. Well, just don't tell my dad. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> I was going to say, you should come fishing with me someday. And then I'm like, I'm not taking that guy. He's like, loose lips over there. No way I'm taking that guy. Nikki, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Um, right. Tell me, I want to go back to Home Assassin briefly. All right. Uh, talk about Bobby Era. <laughs> he said that he took you under his wing and took care All right, of you. So I got it. I got, I'll tell you my Bobby Eric story. <clears throat> so everybody knew Bobby's story. Um, so tell that story briefly because a lot of the people. Well, I don't know. Are you to allowed to? So he's still got friends and stuff. Are we allowed to? Yeah, talk everyone. About everyone a, knows who Bobby Eric was. Yeah, yeah. he was. Uh, he was. A, he was a notorious alleged mob guy. Yeah. I thought he was a pretty cool guy actually, and uh, you know we hung out a little bit. I got it's another one of those, you know so-called legendary characters up there at Homosassa that this young kid from Indian Rocks Beach got to meet. So one of the guys that fished with me up there at Homosassa wanted to go fish the Gold Cup one year. I'd never been there in my boat to the Keys. And he says, I want you to come fish me in the Gold Cup. I'm like, me? I don't know why you would want to do that. He's like, I'll tell you why. I like to pole around like you guys do. He goes, "I, I don't want to park on an edge I want to pull around. And you guys up here, you pull hard all day into the wind. Pull, pull, pull. He goes, I, I fished there a long time. I know a lot of the spots. We'll go fish your boat. I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> Chances of me beating some local guy in the Keys. But I'm like, hey, if you want to go, I'll go. So I go to the Keys. He gets us a slip at the Lorelei. And I'm hanging around there one night. I'm thinking, man, I'm I'm hitting the big time here. You know, I got my skiff. I'm doing a little guiding. Now I'm down here in like the biggest tournament with all these famous guys. Guy comes walking up to me. It's after dark. And he says, uh, hey, you know, nice boat. You, uh, my boat's sitting in the water right there. He's like, you a guide? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm in here for the tournament. He's like, yeah, well, we, we don't allow any outside guides in here. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm not like guiding here looking for business or anything i'm here for the tournament you know my guide rented us a slip or whatever he's like yeah no outside guides allowed in here and he's like looking at me like you can't stay and it's at night and i'm like dang i got what am i gonna like he's not asking nicely he's telling me i gotta get out so uh i didn't know what to do you know i don't know anybody around there so that <clears throat> i think it was like the next night maybe it was captain's meeting for the gold cup or something like that these uh they told me I had to leave. The Lorelei people told me I had to get out. And I didn't know where I was going to go. Billy Pate comes up to me and he says, Hey, Ed, 
I heard what happened. I think that's a bunch of crap. You can keep your boat at my house. <laughs> like, because he had a little marina behind right, his up, house. right down the street. Yeah, he's like, I don't support what these guys are doing. You know, you can keep your boat at my house. I'm like, this is the guy I've watched in videos right. since I was a kid. Just said, come stay at my house. And I'm like, wow, that's great. So then Bobiera comes up to me and he's like, hey Ed, I heard what happened. He goes, you need to keep your boat at my house. So he also had a house right down the street mm. from the deal. I'm like, well, wow, this is. These guys that I hardly know are stepping up for the kid over here. So uh, I'm thinking about it. I'm like, well, what's the safest place in the Keys? <laughs> Which house would you choose <laughs> to keep your boat safe at night? Yeah, I went kept it at Baviera's so. house. I'm going to go to the house that's got a lot of guns in it. <laughs> <laughs> I felt completely safe at Bobby's house. And I stayed there for like, whatever, three or four days. So that was pretty cool. I can't believe they tried to kick you out of the Lorelei. They did kick me out of the Lorelei. And then, so... Uh, my charter client was good friends with, I don't know if I want to go this route. Yeah, what the hell. So the guy who kicked me out was the president of the Keys Guides Association. Who was it? You remember? Can we use the beep button? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Didn't know the guy, but I know he just kicked a 20-year-old kid out of the marina for, you know, the tournament. But, well... My charter guy was a big supporter of the Florida Keys Guides Association, financial contributor. And he, he was pissed off. And he went and he handed the guy all of his T-shirts and stuff that they had given him from being a donator and stuff. And he's like, you can take all this stuff back and I'm never going to contribute to your organization again. And the guy kind of starts backpedaling. I'm really sorry. I didn't know it was you. He goes, it shouldn't matter if it was me or not. You know, so. Mm, that's too bad. Middle of it. I've never even been to the place. I am, I am knee deep in the stuff. It's kind of like the, the Boca Grand tournament. I go from, you know, kid from out of town rolling into straight into controversy. Did you, did you pre-fish at all during the Gold, the gold yeah, Cup? Oh, yeah, we yeah. pre-fished quite a bit. And we, we caught fish. Um, you know, it'd be a better end to the story if I say, yeah, you know, we place in the top three or something like that. I, that, that didn't happen, but we what, caught some fish. Was it pretty intimidating um, navigating back there? You know, never been down there? <laughs> So he's telling me, you know, they let him go in way. Oh, you obviously know how they let it go. <clears throat> they let him go, what, three waves? Mm -hmm. Each each day you get to go first. Yep. Each team gets to go first. So it's my day. And he's like, we got to run for the pocket. Hmm. <laughs> you know, I don't even think I had a, pretty sure I didn't have a GPS. There was no GPS back then. Because at 545, this, you're, you're in the dark. In the dark. And that's 1991. There was no GPSs on skiffs. And he's like, I know the way. <laughs> We're going to run to, how far is it out there? Miles out there, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. To Buchanan Bank in the dark, first time. I'm like, I, I, man, Tommy, I don't know. <laughs> he's like, we'll do it. Let's just send it. Okay, here we go. So we get out there somehow. And we're circling around at the time. There's like a pile of cans on the bottom, right? Mm -hmm. There's no marker or something. He's like, it's because it's dark. He's like, just look for the cans on the bottom. You get a flashlight looking and down, looking for there's three them. or four of us going around this thing. And one of them's Ralph Delph. And, you know, the, the gurus are fishing. And we're all looking for a pile of cans in the, in the dark in the middle of nowhere. And I'm like, what is going on? So two of us kind of find it at the same time. I forget who the other guy was, but he's some gold cup level guide. And I'm like. I, I can't, I can't, I'm not taking these like bullshit. You put your pole down right here. We got this thing. We got, I'm like, Tommy, I, I cannot, <laughs> I can't do it, man. 
I'll take position number three. He told me, he says, there's a, there's a dip between one and three that's not as good. Three is the better spot in line on there. And I, so I, 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 I backed out on that. I wasn't going to stick my stick in there in front of some local guide and say, I've, I am king of the pocket today in this tournament. So we got to watch a guy catch some fish in front of us. But out of that, I couldn't do it. We had a very interesting encounter out there one time. We had never fished the, the pocket in, in the Gold Cup. I was with Timmy Hoover, but we had really bad weather, and it didn't make sense to run to the lower keys. So the day before the tournament started, we went to the pocket, and we're on the outside of the pocket. And Timmy's been there a bunch of times, but never in the dark. I said, Timmy, I think we ought to mark this on the GPS so we know exactly where to go. He said, no, I got, the, I got it. I know where we're at. So the next morning, we were racing out there, and we're not on on the can on the, on the on the little hook there that's got a bunch of cans on the bottom we were actually between the pocket and like the first point and we're kind of looking around and timmy's kind of pulling and and um lee baker comes running in and he grabs the first point and we're still out there in no man's land and he's <laughs> watching us kind of putts around looking 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 and pretty soon he, he cranks up his motor and runs right right ahead of us like 20 feet Sticks his pole in. He goes, sorry, boys, we got the pocket. <laughs> and now I'm about ready to kill Hoover. I'm going, are you fucking kidding yeah, me? Yeah, that's where I was. Yeah. And so Tammy and Lee start kind of going out a little bit. Like, yep. Tammy's going, what are you doing? You stole it. He said, no, I didn't steal it. You didn't have it. Yeah, I got it. And, and Hoover says, God damn it. Lee, you do this. I'm never talking to you again. And it fucking worked. All of a sudden, he backs up. He said, I don't want that to happen. He backs up because the first spot, and we go up and, you know, where the cans were. But Pocket dynamics. But back in the day, that's where everybody wanted to go. Those fish came right down that, that edge. That's crazy. So yeah. you, you did you fish much in the Keys other than that one time? I've never professionally fished down, fished down there. I go down there every year for vacation. I spend a fair amount of time down there, but... I'd, no, I don't guide down there. Mm -hmm. But you're a big diver as well. Do you do you enjoy <clears throat> diving as much as fishing? So I went through a phase. Uh, I became a big free diver. Um, there's some guys around here where I live that are like world class breath hold free dive spear guys. Um, and I kind of like spear fishing. My what I brought to the table, they kind of adopted me in their little group. Is that I had good fishing spots. You know, I had grouper snapper spots, so I could bring the a team of divers and we go down there and shoot groupers and snappers um and i became they they taught me some really amazing ways that you can hold your breath for a long time and then i went through some training courses and stuff and i got to i can free dive over 100 feet now and get a fish if i need wow. to no way so i started doing tournaments with these guys and you know, for, for three or four years, I was, a, I guess, five years. I was a competitive free diver. We won the state championship twice. Holy out cow. Out of Bayport, actually, up there we used to fish. How, how long could you hold your breath? Uh, in training in the pool, I've done four minutes, 45 seconds. Wow. And that's without the pressure at 20 feet down or 50 feet down. Uh, feet well, down. That, it's laying in the pool, you're completely like in a zen state, you know. You're that, not exerting just, any energy. No, for, for an actual getting a fish, you know, two minutes would be a big big die for me or out in the ocean with things swimming around you and stuff like that but, what are some of those tricks that they were telling you um so one you might not guess is that when you hold your breath 
and you start to feel like you've held it too long and you start yeah. this yeah, yeah. gulp thing, you can get past that. You can ignore that one. So for how much longer? So a, a whole nother door opens up after you tell that one no. It, it's your body telling you that you're about to black out. But the first one, you go past it, and then it's like, ah, it's like this Zen state. You would never do it without training or somebody right. telling you. So that you can you can stay down quite a bit longer. Then the next one, when it comes around, you it, you need to go. And what does that feel like? In, in Same the, thing. But, but worse. <laughs> No, same. same. It's just the second one. <laughs> have you ever like I said this you, is not a thing you know you want to try? Just I'm going to go out and try and ignore my uh, reflex to to go to the surface. But, but let me ask you if that second phase of that rejection happens at a hundred feet, you got big problems. So when the first time that happens, well, you start moving a hundred feet. The surface? Yeah, you should not be there. At, you know that that would happen as you're about to break the surface. You should already be on your way. You should you know you kind of know your limits. You should be on your way to the top at that. If right. you're on the bottom at that that late in the game, yeah, you better have a backup guy behind you. Because what happens in free diving or any breath holding, you black out when you hold your breath too long. You're not dead. And you haven't. You don't. Your your mouth closes, and water does not go into your lungs. So you're just unconscious, but you're not drowned. So if someone takes you to the top, you'll wake up and you'll be fine. You can lay on the bottom for a minute and a half if you haven't woken up yet. And naturally, your defense system shuts your mouth. Closes your mouth. So when you do, they taught us rescues and stuff. And when you rescue a guy, you hold his mouth, you put your hand over his chin and you hold his mouth shut in case he wakes up on the way to the top while you're swimming him up. Gasping don't, for You air. don't let him gasp because he'll suck water in and drown. So. Have you ever blacked out? I have not. My family has been through a terrible scuba diving accident. My father-in-law passed away on a dive boat with all of us. My wife at oh. his side. I was the nearest boat. Um, I wasn't on their boat. I was fishing a kingfish tournament. Just happened to be nearby, and we saw someone signal for help. And I went over there, oh, and my no. father was on the deck, and he was dead. And his, my wife was crying over his body. Oh, was oh terrible. no. That was the last time I ever scuba dove. I became a free diver that day. I, I got a great distrust for compressed air inside my body. So that's how I became a free diver. And we, <laughs> since I won the state championship in 2010, 2015, and I don't even really do it that much anymore. Wow. My son's a good free diver too. I got mm -hmm. a 17 year old son. He's an ace free diver. Mm -hmm. But after you won the, uh, the championships, why, how come you didn't continue? <laughs> you want to just go back to fishing? I still free dive some. I don't know. I was super jazzed up about it for a few years. It was like the coolest thing in the world for me. And now it's just like another thing that I do. I'm not as fired up. I'm not really sure why. Kind of bored with it? Uh, Too painful? You know, maybe it's the damn sharks. The sharks are every time now. Yeah. It used to be you'd see a shark a couple times a year. And now it's... Now you got a dead at, fish at, down there with you. Every day. Every dive trip you do now, you, you're dealing with sharks you know and they're not trying to eat you usually they'll come and take your fish and scare you to death and maybe it will eat you i don't know but what kind <laughs> yeah. of sharks are you talking I, i'm not about? really scared of sharks mm. i'm not saying that's why i got out of diving but um there's there's lots of sharks now it used to be like i said a couple times a year we used to swim around with a stringer of fish on our side you know shoot another one put them on the stringer keep swimming mm -hmm. <laughs> no way you could do that now right. that thing would drag you away Right. Yeah, we see no, sandbar sharks are very common, probably the most common shark out here. 
hammerheads, bulls. I haven't seen a few small tigers. Mm-hmm. Well, then it's, <clears> in one phase, you kind of left the skiff world and got into a, a bigger boat. How did that transition take place and why? <clears throat> Uh, that happened because when I was a kid, I worked as a deckhand. When I was going to college, I worked as a deckhand on an offshore boat on the side <clears throat> and I liked offshore fishing and I bought an offshore boat to go with my skiff and I started spending more time out there and I really liked it and started doing, uh, offshore charters and that worked out pretty good so i had an offshore and an inshore thing going and i don't know i just kind of i've gravitated toward that quite a bit in the last few years offshore fishing Mm -hmm. and and now i've started to bring back some of my old fly fishing aspirations into the offshore world out there so we we'd be out there grouper snapper fishing and we we'd see the groupers coming up to the top every once in a while or we chum real big and we get the snapper and grouper on the top and i'm like man i could catch that thing on my fly rod so i start i sit down on the on the vice over there and i think i'm going to tie this big fluffy shiny fly and i'm going to put a bunch of lead in it underneath and so it's going to be real heavy and i'm going to catch a grouper on this thing next time i'm going to chum them up i'm going to catch a grouper up there and so i try that and it's really easy if you get the fish doing the right thing you could fly fish for anything Right. So long story short, we have nine or 10 world record gags on fly. Now I have the 16 pound tippet. We have almost all the women's records on fly and we have 39 world records overall red snapper. I have the amberjack record right now and we have a blast with mm-hmm. that offshore fly fishing. It's you're going to catch fish. You get the, the you get them good. Get Cause the, you know, the there's, there's great fishing out there in the Gulf and you, you get them chummed up with live bait or dead bait or something. And you know, they'll take a fly. I mean, we've got gags jumping for poppers on the surface. Sometimes mm-hmm. stuff you would never think you could get a grouper to do. Yeah. That's what Del, Ralph Delph and uh, RT Tross did a lot in Key West. Yes. Jose Wahebi. Those guys uh, wrote the book on all that stuff. They did. In fact, uh, one of the Key West guys contacted me. I put on my Instagram, I put some videos of the, you know, gags jumping for flies and all that and said we caught some world records. And this guy, he sends me a message. He goes, man, those those were all my records for gags that you beat. He goes, <laughs> 15 years ago, we, we stumbled into a, another, you know, a way of doing that and right. we set all those records and i'm like hey man i'm sorry he's like no man it's cool it's just interesting to see that somebody's doing it is that um is that a hard thing to figure out is there a there's, technique there's to it 100 there's true i mean a red snapper is a no-brainer if you get a red snapper chummed up on the top you catch him on a hot dog is it hard to get him up the chumming technique is there's some tricks to it yeah mm-hmm. it's not that hard but you got to know how to do it. You got to know how to do it. Probably the main thing is you cannot put a line in the water. You have to, you have to, if you want to make them do what you need them to do, you can't put a line in the water until they're all the way ready. How long does that typically take? Depends on what you're doing and depends on the spot and how deep it is and all that. But we start out with some chum nuggets, you know, cut up sardines or something like that. And then when we start seeing them in the back, we put a little bit more on there. And then when they come up a little higher, and then we dip in the live well. We just take nets full of live bait and we just throw all that out there. And that just, that brings them all the way to the top and they start firing off and jumping on them. And then shoot, you drop that little shiny little fly in there and it just touches the water and they fight for the thing. 
Was anyone else doing this at the time? I don't think so. Not around here. I don't think anybody. Well, so the problem with the grouper is he runs straight to a rock every single time. That's mm-hmm. his job. He lives in a rock. He comes out to eat something, and he runs right back to the rock, and he's super strong. So a fly rod's not really an efficient tool for pulling a grouper away from the rock. How big are these groupers? Uh, the, on the 16-pound tippet right now, I have the, I have a 15 and a half pounder so i don't know 30 32 inches or mm-hmm. something but getting them away from the rock is where the tricks come in that i would need the beep button to say <laughs> <laughs> we don't need to say it <laughs> there's there's like i said there's always another trick always I, I believe that to my soul who's been your greatest mentor over the years hmm mentor or go-to guy to help figure a lot of this out <laughs> I don't know that I had one in particular. A lot of guys helped me out mm-hmm. here and there along the way. As far as record fishing goes, I had a guy that hired me as a guide. Stan Nabosny is his name. And he has over 100 world records. And he showed me, you know, how to little tricky little tippet setups and testing his line with a scale in the morning over and over again and drag settings getting it just right and all like different kinds of sinking lines and shooting heads and kind of technical stuff and he would he fished with me four or five years you know regularly and he showed me a lot of the technical he's a fly guy he's both yes um, and we still, he caught 18 records with me, but that, that was all him. I just drove the boat and he had all the tricks and the flies and everything. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that he was a mentor for me overall, but as far as that stuff goes, he definitely, I learned a lot from him. He, he, he contacted me cause he wanted to catch the eight pound line class record on tarpon. Mm-hmm. And we did that for years and we came really close, but it, it we, it's, remains to be seen how it ends but we had a we had one that was probably 30 pounds big enough to the boat we were gonna gaff it and all so that. the eight pound record is 127 and a half no i think it's on i'm talking line class not oh fly. that's not uh, yeah, that's the yeah. fly he wanted to catch it on line class and so what's like that record 147 or oh, something that's a big like one, that yeah. but we had a really big one it took us five years to figure out the technique we, we came up with some bizarre leader setups and you know on line class you can you can have like twenty feet of leader, right? Right. That's how the marlin guys and stuff. So they do back it. down and finally get. But with a tarpon, he doesn't care. He's just gonna swim away from you if you get up on it. But <clears throat> so we decide, you know, and it was uh, I I remember I called Al DePeric and I said, hey, what do you do? You know, it's really taboo nowadays to even think about killing a tarpon. Right. Even for a record, most people say, you know, no way. I said, but. I, you know, when I was a kid, we used them for shark bait. I, I'm not a tarpon killer, but back then, that's what people did. And I wouldn't do it now. But if I catch a really big world record, I might, I think I'd take one. And I said, how do you deal with the stigma that's, you know, going to come with hanging a tarpon up on the dock? Because he's hung today's. a bunch of them up there. Right. So he's he's like maybe one guy I could talk to right now about my dilemma that I'm having, whether I should actually kill a world record tarpon or not. And he told me, he's like... I don't care. <laughs> he said, I'd care not one bit what anybody thinks. I mm-hmm. get the world record next to the boat. He's coming to the dock with me, and don't worry about what anybody says. So. Well, also, too, Steve Huff um, was the, the captain for Nathaniel Linville, 
and Chad Huff when they caught story. a 143 on six-pound test. And we were at the uh, BTT Tarpon Symposium right after they got that record. And it was, you know, a lot of people are going to think this is really stupid to kill a fish for a world record for sure. Yeah. But what happens in the, in, in, there's no justification for it. There's none. But a lot of people think that, well, let's just say you catch a world record that might be 40 pounds above that record. Mm-hmm. You eliminate all the dead fish that are going to be taken for a record between that that current record and the new one you just set. Hmm. That's how a lot of people think about it. Hmm. But it's a it's a dying breed that wants to yeah. To, it, you know, it is. back in the back in the sixties, you know, they they hung them all up for no reason at all. Yeah. And the mindset too is is that if you are chasing a record, let's just say it's one hundred and fifty pounds, all the fish you catch that aren't 150 pounds, you're going to probably break it off right away. So oh, sure. Then you, yeah, yeah. then you eliminate the risk of sharks. Oh, yeah. You eliminate the risk of long fights First and dying. First that's what we so do. So Nathaniel's always said, I'm actually, I believe I'm saving a lot more tarpon lives by pursuing a world record because I'm going to kill one in maybe 10 years if I'm lucky. Well, he killed, well, take a look at a couple of the other records like Dustin Huff and, and Thane Morgan. They've got a 123 on four pound test. <laughs> no one's ever gonna I'll be tie feeling four really pound. good about that. No one, one's right? ever gonna tie four pound test on no, go catch that, a world That fly snaps off on the cast more often than y- not. Yeah, so I mean that is a case in point with with all that kind of stuff. Um, so you basically uh, also too have gravitated to a bigger boat to go tarpon fishing. Yep. Yep. Do you miss your skiff and pulling? Uh, I fish my skiff. Pretty often, I don't guide much in it. It's mm-hmm. uh, my son and I like to go fish tailing redfish and stuff around the neighborhood here, and we fish the sandbars for tarpon every once in a while. But the beach fishing for tarpon that we like to do is it's rough pretty often. Well, mm-hmm. actually, when it's best, it's rough, right. and it runs all the skiff guys off the beach, <clears> and we have more room, and the fish bite better, and everything's better. So the longer you can hang out there, when that sea breeze comes on at one o'clock in the afternoon, and chops that beach up, every skiff leaves. And, every and I fish stay bites. there. I stay there till five. I'm the, I'm the afternoon shift. You know, my guys, they roll up to the dock about eight o'clock in the morning for a tarpon charter. And then we go and we catch bait for about an hour and we shoot the breeze and we creep around. And we all know that our best fishing is going to be like two to two to five or six or however late we stay out there. So it's all based on the sea breeze and not a tide. Right. I mean, tides make a difference to be sure, but my, my operation is set up with the, you know, 25 foot, you know, I wouldn't even call it a bay boat. It's more of a center console. And, right. and you'll see that the, the, the beach guys around Boca Grande now, the boats have gotten much bigger, you know, a 26 footers kind of average now out there for the guys that stay on the beach and fish because let, just give me that wind and chop it up. And those fish bite so much better when mm-hmm. that comes, especially if it gets rough enough to, to get dirty. Right. You have fly guys out there on your bigger boat? Not. I have one guy that we bring it. Mm-hmm. And if it's when they're just really right, he'll, he'll bust you'll, it out and throw it. You'll but, it. You know, it's windy, so it's not yeah. always the best opportunity. What about 200-pound fish? You've had a relationship with those big guys before. I mean, I've caught some. Um, we weighed one. Actually, I think it was the biggest in Boca Grande at the time. We weighed a 208 in those Miller's Marina tournaments back in the day when you were, that was, uh, I guess, a, a weigh and release deal. Right. 
Not those TV tournaments. (laughs) We didn't have matching shirts on. (laughs) You know, I'm just reluctant to even say I fished a tournament in Boca Grande because of those things, because you just get lumped in with a bunch of different people yeah what uh what's it like to catch a 200 pound fish and you grab i mean i don't know we when we fish the beach for tarpon out there we catch a lot of big ones you know 150 pounders all the time really yeah yeah um why are so many big fish swimming in the beach out there well they're going to broca grand and it's spawning season i mean not my guess Mm -hmm. so the biggest of the big come from wherever they come from to get in on the spawning deal Right. Because, you know, we, I would say we catch, you know, three or four fish a week over 150. But every last few years, I think I mentioned to you one time, <clears throat> I sent you a picture or something like that. We caught one that was, it was really big. <laughs> What's that <laughs> well, mean? Well, I, I weighed a 208, and this one was significantly larger than really? that. Really? So I, I don't know if I'm going to put a number on it, but, you know, and, you don't know until you weigh them, but it's big. And we didn't measure anything like that. We mm-hmm. just we just snapped them. We didn't even grab them. You know, we had them, we had them beat. And we're playing in alongside, and we got a you know picture of them and popped them off, and off she went, I guess. Mm-hmm. But we we catch. I've caught you know three or four in the last ten years that were well over two hundred. I wow. think. But, what do they look like when they jump? Do they get out? Uh, of probably the a big tarpon. <laughs> well, I'm I'm just thinking because I would think a 220 pound fish is going to be hard for them to get completely out of the water. So yeah, I, I've I would seen think them get to their tail. I've seen them pretty on the tail, but you know, it's just it's the oh my god factor. Like the drag, you get a bite, the drag's going out, and he runs off, and all of a sudden this thing comes out of the water, and everybody on the Screaming. boat says, "Oh my gosh, did you see what I saw?" And then you get him next to the boat, you see the big girth. So. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely. Some extra largest swim down that. There's some big ones in that shallow place I shouldn't mention. But but some yeah. of the fly guys are <laughs> dialed in on some. You know, the biggest tarpon on fly is not necessarily going to come from Homosassa. It may well come from southwest Florida one of these days. If really? There, if there's some record and, guys And, and not Apalachicola in that area up there? I don't know much about that place. Yeah. I know very little about that, I know, uh, I know David, of it, but I don't know anything about yeah, it. Yeah, Mangum catches a lot of big fish up there. Yeah, um, I've heard... But now you've kind of gravitated to fishery management, and you're associated with with the with the Gulf uh, fishery. Tell tell us about that. So yes, in my advanced years, I felt like I should try and give something back to the Gulf for everything I have was provided by the Gulf of Mexico. Everything, every job. I've never had another job outside of fishing in the Gulf of Mexico. <clears throat> So I started getting involved in some fisheries management issues. You know, the gag grouper were, they were saying that they were all dying when they let them go or or 30% of them were dying when they were released. And so they were cutting the season back short. And I knew that to not be true. So I got involved, started going to meetings and, you know, banging my fist on the table at the podium for three minutes saying, you guys have this wrong. You need to reevaluate it. So I started, uh, I got involved with some of the, biologists a lot of the biologists actually and we started doing all these different studies and that that particular issue we did a three-year study and they were like man he was right it's more like eight percent discard mortality is what they call it so they gave fishermen a longer season 
Were they were they tagging these fish to see that, that they were a, still alive and swimming on the bottom? That was an acoustic telemetry study, which okay. they do on tarpon and permit and stuff now too. But this was this is like ten years ago, I think. It was first I had seen it. So they put a little pinger in the fish or on the fish, and we dive down and we would put these listening devices on these individual spots. And groupers pretty much stay on the same spot all the time. We had groupers stayed on the same spot for a year. Most of them stayed more than 180 days. Some of them stayed for a year on the same exact location. So, under, the, under the same rock. Same patch, almost. you know, yeah. reef, whatever. Same same, same zone, because this thing is listening to the pings on the, uh, you know, the receiver, they call it. So we realized that they can tell if he's moving around and if he's alive. So we realized, well, they're, those fish are surviving. Mm -hmm. So so it opened me up to like, you can make a difference in some of this stuff. You know, I, that was particular issue was to benefit grouper fishermen i was like wow this i can make a difference if i you know i get involved with the scientists and all this so i've i've gone through i don't know how many probably been involved in 10 big projects for different species and stuff now over the years <clears throat> and then it gets to management and sometimes management doesn't do what the science says you can do with it you know either restrict something more or open something up a little more based on the science so I got kind of frustrated with that. So I said, I, I, maybe I need to be one of these fisheries management people. I think I can do it. So you have to be nominated by the governor to be put on the Gulf. It's the Gulf of Mexico Fisheries Management Council. They make the rules for the Gulf of Mexico. How does the governor even find out who Eddie Walker is? So I apply with the appointments office. Then I have friends and associates write letters on my behalf mm -hmm. and, you know, people who know the governor governor's from here right and he's from Dunedin so he has connections here but this went on with three different governors over about 14 years mm. I got nominated by all three and I did not get the position so the way it works is he picks three people and he sends those three people on a list to Washington DC and the Secretary of Commerce picks who actually gets it out of those three wow. the governor says I want this person first. He's my first choice, but I'm required to send three names. So here's the other two names. And I was even top pick before, and I still didn't get it. Why? Because I can't imagine the person in Washington is going to understand who any of these there's, three people well, are. Well, there's a tremendous amount of lobbying that goes on. Once those names get there, you know, because maybe one guy is associated with a, say, charter group or commercial group or recreational group. So those particular people, they want their guy on there. Right. So they all start lobbying for their guy. And I, my whole angle was I'm the balanced guy. Right? I, I have a charter boat license. I have a commercial license. I've been a guide for 30 something years and I'm a recreational guy and I'm a diver. So I'm, I'm well-rounded. Well, nobody ever wanted a well-rounded guy. They always wanted their guy that stood for their stakeholder group. Mm -hmm. So this year, I got nominated again. I was third choice. And I did a bunch of lobbying, but by now I know a lot of people in management, some of the some of the higher ups in management, and had a lot of letters written on my behalf. I had a long phone conversation with the head of NOAA Fisheries, a video conference. And lo and behold, they pulled my card this year and said, Congratulations. You've been appointed to the Gulf of Mexico Fishery Management. The Secretary of Commerce picked me to represent wow. people of Florida on the Gulf. Each state has three people on the council here um, in Louisiana. How many years is that position? 
three years and you can do three three-year terms and what does that job entail so you set the seasons for all the different species in the gulf as far as uh, federal waters go outside of nine miles we set the length of grouper season snapper season we set the size limits and i mean that's just part of it there's a lot of things we do but <clears throat> we kind of set the allocation which is the most difficult mm -hmm. right so say that the, the science says we can take two million pounds of grouper out of the gulf say gag grouper we have to decide there's different groups that each get an allocation of that two million we take off a little for a buffer to make sure they don't overfish and then this group gets this many and the commercial guys get this many and now on some species the charter boat guys get a separate allocation like for red snapper so a lot of people looking at you when you have to make those decisions right, right? yeah that's They're a like, big job hey ed you know we could use that uh, the commercial guys need more or right. the recreational guys should get everything or you know that this is the position that i have we ever offered money by somebody no no because i would think that that typically is, is how a lot of things in government work well, it's I can just tell the, you. the same as like big sugar with the board members <laughs> No, I don't think that's the case. I, I know all the Gulf Council members. There's 17 from around the three, like I said, three or so from each state. And I don't, I don't see any of that. Uh, I, you know, it's, that's not really right. a thing. You know, nobody's, I haven't seen anybody make a vote that would even make me think that, oh, this guy's on the take right. for the. Now, uh, let me ask you, do, do you have deep conversations with each of these certain or different areas to understand their point of view before you make your assessment? I'm glad you asked me that question because this is a perfect opportunity. So I'm, I'm in there. I got put in, in my view, as the balanced guy. I, I, I know all the different ways that you can fish in the, or all the stakeholder groups. So the last council meeting, we're in Panama City. And... At the end of the council meeting, and not the end, but part of it, there's public testimony where the public comes in. They mm -hmm. get three minutes on the podium, and the council listens to their side of the story. Four hours of public testimony. Not one recreational fisherman came up there and spoke. There was two, two guy, one guy from American Sport Fishing Association and a, and a government rep from Louisiana are the only people in four hours who said... The recreational guys should have this. And the rest of it was commercial guys hammering the recreational guys over and over, saying that they need to stop all this recreational fishing. They're wiping them out. There's so many people. Charter boat guys, they don't really support uh, recreational guys either. And I'm like, where are the re the largest stakeholder group in the Gulf? Does no one comes and speaks for them at the meeting? Now, granted, it's on a weekday and people have jobs. I get that, but to me, it's hugely disappointing the recreational input that we get. So yes, I go out and get it. I mm -hmm. try and reach out to these groups and say, you know, I'll come to your meeting. I need to know, like, if I have an issue that I think needs to happen on the recreational side that benefits recreational fishermen, I need some backup. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't go up there and say, we need to change this by myself. I gotta have 10 people in the room say, you know, this is what the community wants. This is what's best for our fishery. Nobody is showing up for recreation. And I am tremendously disappointed in that because like, it's hard to, hard to help when right. no one When you're the, the only time. voice. I mean, I'd still do it, 
But you're the only voice representing recreation. There's other recreational guys on the council. Don't say that much. Yeah, but, but none um, for the public. The public does not show up. Do they know the issues? Do they? Some realize? of them know the issues, and they just say it won't make a difference. You know, and then you go back to the Tallahassee thing, right? You go back to captains for clean water. They we do make a difference. Totally made a difference in that issue. We changed. It would that not issue. happen with that right. all that and ground movement. If, if I could get that message out to some recreational reef fishermen in the Gulf, that would make me happy because mm -hmm. I need some help, some backup on these issues for that. Because it's even the CCA didn't even speak at the last council meeting. They're the biggest recreational group. You know, there was a guy there. I know the guy. I, I go over and talk to him. Try and say, tell me what what you like. What what do you want guys want? What can I do to help you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think the CCA said anything about the Louisiana redfish regulations either the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, right. What um what now? Anything else that you'd like to talk about? Hmm. <laughs> there was a story I said, you know, if I ever get on that Millhouse podcast thing, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell them my my kingfish, king mackerel tournament story. So a couple of years ago, we were in this big tournament, the biggest kingfish tournament they have here. And I wasn't really into it. Just had a couple of buddies of mine, not like my A team guys. We just went out the night before, caught a little bait, and I said, "We'll just throw our hat in the ring. It pays a hundred thousand dollars, so we'll try it." So we go out here, we're catching barracudas and catching nothing. We're almost out of bait. <clears throat> I run to a spot. I've never caught a kingfish. I put a bait out. Rod goes off. It's a giant kingfish. Giant. How big? 49 pounds. <laughs> so my two buddies who aren't really big fishermen, they, they start like, we see it. They start kind of freaking out. They're like, oh my gosh, oh my God, what, you know, the, the one guy's driving, I've got the gaff, and the other guy's fighting, and he's like, someone needs to take this rod. I can't, I can't do this. I've never caught a kingfish this big. Somebody, and like, there's no one to take the rod, man. Just, you're doing fine. Just play through. So he's like losing it. And the guy driving the boat, he's afraid he's going to run the thing over. He doesn't know what to do, and the wheels are just coming off. And I'm looking at $100,000 just out of reach of the gaff, right? And it's rough. <clears throat> So the fish is planing along next to the boat and we've got the boat in reverse and we just try and keep them planing along and you shorten them up and shorten them up and shorten them up. You don't want them to turn around and run off because then the wire leader or whatever. So I've got this 12 foot gaff and the fish goes around the back of the boat. Like I, I got this, I got to get this thing now. This, this, I'm going to lose this fish with the way things are going. <clears throat> so I step over this kind of the back of my transom. There's a little area you can stand in the back of the boat. And I can barely reach the thing. So I reach with this 12-foot gaff way out here, and I get him right behind the dorsal fin, and that thing snatches me off the boat so fast. <laughs> like, like, gone, right? And, and I don't care. I'm still thinking $100,000. So he takes me out, and they told me I went across the top for a while, and then he just takes me down, and I'm gone. This is in 50 feet of water. So I'm down there. I don't know how deep I went. I could, the ledge was there. It was 50 feet and I could see the ledge without a mask on. I lost my hat and my glasses and all that stuff. And I'm being dragged down by this and I can see this big tail going like this. And I'm like, you are coming with me, you big bastard. I am taking you to the house. I'm, I'm, I'm at least 30 feet underwater. And I'm like, I'm not coming back up. With and I'm again. a free driver. That's I, right. I don't know how to hold That's my right. breath. I'll stay down here yeah. as long as it takes. I'm taking this fish to the top with me. So this big tail keeps beating and beating and I'm, I'm swimming up with my 
boots on, you know, and I'm like, okay, I got him coming this way. And he pulled me back a little bit. So finally I get toward the top and I put the gaff up like this. I'm like, you know, waiting for somebody to take it and nobody takes it. <laughs> so I pop up, you know, and I've got this thing next to me and I look and the boat's like way over there. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? They said, we didn't know where you were. <laughs> You've been gone you were down there. We didn't, we didn't want to run you over. I'm like, come grab this fish. So they come over, take the gaff, put the fish in the boat and Ended up, that happened to be the day a guy caught the tournament record. So we ended up in third that day. But we got that. It was 49 pounds. And we got it. How much money did you make? Ah, uh, it's like 25 grand or something like that. But That's a great that's story. A great story. Sna I mean, snatch me off right <laughs> now. Across, they said it looked like Jaws. I went across the top and then I just went under. What are you thinking midair? There wasn't much air. <laughs> it was straight in. It wasn't It wasn't like he pulled me up and over. As soon as I, he was laying there kind of. Passive, what, you, you know, as soon as he felt the gap, what do you think going, when your feet left the deck? I'm just thinking, you're I'm catching this fish, I don't care what happens. <laughs> this fish, I don't care where I am or what's going on. This fish is going on that boat, and we're taking it to the hill. God, you wouldn't think a 49 pound kingfish would have that much power. He was big, and I got him in the back end, and he was behind out of the balance, dorsal fin, out like this. And I was on one foot probably when yeah. I hit him with it, and he was kind of passive. And as soon as he felt that hook, he just bolted and just took me right with him. So. What a great story. Well, Eddie, it's great to see you, as always. Great to see and you, Andy. You're, you've got an amazing life in fishing, and I'm glad you shared it with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks so much for having good. me. Really yeah. appreciate Thanks, it. Andy. And good luck with the management stuff. Thank you. I'll reach out to you if we come up with any way to get Spread some more the word recreational or participation. I could sure use some help on that stuff. All right, buddy. Thank you. It's wonderful how many conservation-minded fishermen have found a way to give back. And in Ed's case, he continues to do so while sitting on the Gulf of Mexico Fishery Management Council. Thank you, Ed. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon.